Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen, but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Box Office Breakdown. I'm going to review the top 10 movies from June 1993 and give you my thoughts, if I have them. Now, the total grosses can be based on movies released within the month of June 1993, or prior to and played through the month of June 1993. At number 10, Super Mario Brothers, starring Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo as our favorite plumbers. Dennis Hopper played King Koopa. Not my favorite casting of the characters. That would be Danny Wells and Captain Lou Albano on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Was this the first attempt to bring a video game to the big screen? Alphonse! Alphonse! Look that up for me. It earned $1.7 million at the box office. Number 9, Sliver. Another Sharon Stone erotic thriller which were popular in the early 90s. It co-starred Tom Berenger and one of the Baldwin brothers. I don't know, have your pick. It earned a little over $2 million. At number 8, Hot Shots, Part 2. Following the success of the Top Gun parody Hot Shots, this time around they take on Rambo. The sequel earned a little under 2.1 million. Number seven, Life with Mikey. Starred Michael J. Fox, Nathan Lane, and one of my favorites, Cindy Lauper. That's quite a threesome. The movie earned 2.1 million at the box office. Number six, Menace to Society. I saw this once in college, but don't remember much about it. Maybe I need to rewatch and review. The movie earned 2.6 million at the box office and would gross over 12 million. Number five, Dave. This is a great movie. Kevin Klein, Sigourney Weaver, Frank Langella, Ving Rames, Ben Kingsley, Charles Grodin, Faith Prince, Laura Linney, Stephen Root, directed by the wonderful Ivan Reitman. I might need to do a recommendation for this one. Oh, well, I. I guess I just did. It grossed over $3 million at the box office and would go on to earn almost $52 million. Number four, Guilty as Sin. Don't have much recollection of this movie. Does anyone? It earned $3.6 million at the box office. At three, Made in America. Whoopi Goldberg, Ted Danson. I believe they started dating soon after this movie. We won't talk about that Friars Club roast. The movie earned $4.7 million at the box office and would go on to gross $29 million. Number two, Cliffhanger. Excellent movie. I saw it again recently. I think it holds up. 
John Lithgow knows how to play a villain. And at number one, not surprisingly, Jurassic Park. My second favorite movie behind Jaws. It's my favorite movie score. There is nothing I don't like about this movie. Now the sequels... Well, I can say some things. But I saw Jurassic Park in the theaters, and it was amazing. The first reveal of that brontosaurus or whatever was awesome. And the special effects still hold up after almost 30 years, and in some cases, look better and more realistic than the CGI these days. Am I right, or am I right, or am I right? The movie would earn $47 million at the box office, and go on to gross $50 million in the month of June 1993. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It. Two stars watch at your own risk, three stars standard fare, four stars worth checking out, and five stars must see. Now if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie, The Man in the White Suit, from 1951. So how'd I miss it? Miss it? I'd never even heard of it. But my father told me the movie was playing on PBS one night, and I thought, what the hell? The premise seemed interesting enough, and it was under 90 minutes. So already I was in a good mood. It was directed by Alexander Mackendick, who helmed The Lady Killers and Sweet Smell of Success. The screenplay was co-written by the director, John Digton, and Roger McDougall. It was nominated at the 1953 Academy Awards for Best Writing Screenplay, losing out to The Bad and the Beautiful. In 2019, it was adapted into a play by Sean Foley, premiering in London's West End. This is something to look out for. This was the feature film debut of popular British child actress Mandy Miller. The movie starts off in a voiceover explaining that the textile industry experienced a bit of turmoil, but calm and sanity had returned. Even though they were able to keep that information of their hardship out of the newspaper, Alan Burnley feels an obligation to tell the story of what happened. He's portrayed by Cecil Parker, a well-known actor who appeared in The Lady Vanishes, Under Capricorn, and The Court Jester. Mr. Burnley visits the mill owned by Michael Corland, which manufactures an artificial fiber similar to one his company produces. Michael is a charming young man who is anxious to impress Mr. Burnley and convinces him that the mill is a sound financial investment. He's played by Michael Goh, who is Alfred Pennyworth in Batman, and appeared in The Serpent and the Rainbow and Out of Africa. The daughter of Mr. Burnley, Daphne, visits the factory to have lunch with her father and Michael. They have been dating, but keeping it low-key, not flaunting their relationship in front of her dad. She is confident that her father will invest money in the mill. She is performed by Joan Greenwood, whose credits include Tom Jones, The House of the Baskervilles, and The Moonspinners. A kiss between the pair is interrupted, and Michael continues leading Mr. Burnley on an illuminating tour of the factory. They come across a curious experiment that the chemists can't explain, and discover that 4,000 pounds was allocated to the project. Each of the employees are called down to the accounts department, including Sidney Stratton, who is personified by Sir Alec Guinness, known as Obi-Wan Kenobi in the good Star Wars trilogy, Dr. Zhivago, and won an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role for The Bridge on the River Kwai. 
Even though the expenditure was claimed to be authorized, Sidney is discharged. He goes down to the employment exchange and tells a representative that his next job must be in a textile mill. There is a vacancy at the Burnley Mill as a works laborer, which he accepts despite being overqualified. His goal is to gain access to the research lab so he can continue to conduct his experiments. When a shipment comes in, Sidney is asked to help bring it up to the lab. It's an electron microscope. He impresses the other employees with his knowledge of the equipment, and they ask him if he could assist them with it until they're up to speed. When Michael doesn't get the investment from Mr. Burnley, Daphne goes in to confront her father. He says one of the reasons is because of their bad judgment, hiring a lunatic who swindled them. The other she already knows. He believes Michael is only dating her for the money. But she informs her father that Michael is determined to find financial assistance without his help. Daphne is glad her father didn't invest because she wants to leave home and break away from the family business. As she storms out of the office, she bumps into Sidney and recognizes him from the Corland mill. She chases after him into the research lab and spots his experiment. She rushes to catch her father to basically rub it in his face that he's hired that same lunatic, but he's already driven off. Sidney tries to reason with Daphne and begs her not to tell her father. He needs another day or two before it will be ready to astound the world. As he rattles off scientific jargon, she becomes interested in his work and an ally. When his invention finally comes to fruition, a fabric that never gets dirty and never wears out, he sees Mr. Burnley who allows Sidney to continue doing research in the lab with the intention to manufacture and market. But when word leaks out about the product, the textile industry realizes that this indestructible fabric will put them out of business, and Sidney becomes the target of their ire. Here's a quote without context. Why can't you scientists leave things alone? The Man in the White Suit was an interesting movie. It's certainly satisfying. There were enough comedic elements, including a fight scene that had the most laughs in it. But it was also a smart comedy about business and the balance of industry. While it's considered science fiction, that's in the literal sense. Don't expect War of the Worlds type sci-fi here. If you've only seen Sir Alec Guinness in Star Wars or The Bridge on the River Kwai, this is certainly a departure. In the beginning, Sidney comes across as kind of living in the shadows, but as we get to know the character, we realize he's eccentric and passionate about his work. He believes in serving a larger purpose, and the people around him are small-minded thinkers. But it does pose interesting questions that are still relevant today. What happens when you have an invention that could benefit the masses, but it'll put many lines of businesses out of work? It reminds me of clean energy. Many unions for the coal industry are against it because it would lead to unemployment. To me, this movie is an elevated comedy. There are some films that are in it just for the laughs, but I think The Man in the White Suit has an underlying message. If I knew anything about England in the 1950s, I'm sure there's a real-life allegory that I've missed. Alphonse! Alphonse! Look that up for me. Now for a little trivial trivia. Sir Alec Guinness would appear with Cecil Parker and Michael Goh in The Lady Killers and Smiley's People, respectively. The cinematography was captured by Douglas Slocum, whose filmography includes Indiana Jones End, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, The Last Crusade, and The Italian Job and Rollerball. It was really well shot. Black and white film just looks amazing. It was edited by Bernard Gribble, who worked on Death Wish, Top Secret, and Motel Hell. There were a couple of questionable edits, but only if you're looking for them. 
The score was composed by Benjamin Frankel, who wrote the music for Battle of the Bulge, The Night of the Iguana, and The Importance of Being Earnest. It was pretty scarce, but impactful in the scenes that were scored. The runtime is 1 hour 25 minutes. While there weren't many financials regarding the film, it was one of the most popular movies in the United Kingdom and earned $500,000 in rentals in North America. It was nominated for one Oscar at the 1953 Academy Awards and Best British Film at the BAFTAs. BFI named it the 58th greatest British film of all time. I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. If you've seen The Man in the White Suit and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. As frequent listeners of the podcast should know, I like animals. While I appreciate pets and nothing can make me laugh harder than dogs being goofy, I prefer wild animals. I don't know if it's the idea that at any moment they can tear out my larynx and that's a bit of an adrenaline rush, but I think it's more about respect. These are animals that will do what they need to do to survive. But I find it fascinating when I come across videos on YouTube of wild animals acting domestic. You know, the way that our worlds have integrated, people invading the environments of animals through fishing, scuba diving, kayaking, surfing, deforestation. I think they've gotten used to the idea of people being in their space. Or maybe it's the personality of certain species of animals that makes them more affable to human interaction. So I saw a couple of videos of seals being friendly with people and thought to post them. A couple of fun facts. Seals are semi-aquatic, meaning they'll spend some time on land to rest or give birth, but they're mostly water-based. Some species can hold their breath for up to two hours underwater. Many can sleep underwater. And they can dive up to 900 meters in depth. How about that? So I'll post a couple of videos featuring friendly seals. They're all available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Mad About You, created by Danny Jacobson, Peter Tolan, and Paul Reiser. It stars Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt as Paul and Jamie Buckman, a yuppie couple living in Manhattan. He's a documentary filmmaker of varying degrees of success, and she's a public relations executive. They have a dog named Murray who chases around a mouse they never see. The couple is visited by an array of characters, including Jamie's sister, Lisa Stemple, played by Anne Ramsey, and Paul's cousin, Ira Buckman, portrayed by John Pankow, who I mentioned in the Monkey Shines episode. They're best friends with Mark and Fran Devenow, acted by Richard Kind and Layla Kenzel. The theme song was written by Paul Reiser and Don Was. Now, this is not the Don Wass that I spoke about on the Matt Forgot That podcast as part of the band Wass Not Was. This is a different Don Was. Paul Reiser actually plays piano on the song, and it's performed by Andrew Gold in the first few seasons, with a new version featuring Anita Baker in the latter seasons. During its initial run, I wasn't a frequent watcher of the series. I would catch it occasionally and enjoy it, but it wasn't on my must-see list. But I've been a big fan of Paul Reiser since his portrayal of slimy company man Carter Burke in Aliens. 
I didn't know he was even a stand-up comedian prior to that role. The series is enjoyable. The first few episodes are a bit neurotic. I would say it found its stride around the middle of the first season. It's a really funny show. The jokes come out of the situations they're in versus throwing out one-liners. I mentioned in the Red Oaks podcast that I've been re-binging this series. Still re-binging. It's taken longer than I thought. A couple of movies and series have gotten in the way. WWE pay-per-views. Now that the baseball season is back and the Mets are actually good, it might be pushed back further. But I'll get around to it. Eventually. Mad About You was on for seven seasons, 164 episodes from 1992 to 1999. A revival aired for one season in 2019 with 12 episodes. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for all the reviews, rants, and randomness. The cinematography was captured by Douglas Slocum. Slocum. Ooh, rough one. Number six. You know what just happened? I just combined six and seven, and that's what you get. (laughs) The couple is visited by an array of characters, including Jamie's sister, Lisa Stemple, played by Anne Ramsey, and Paul's cousin, Ira Buckman, portrayed by John Pankow, who I mentioned in The Shines. Oh. That was going so well.